Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Summer 1962. The fact that Lee Harvey Oswald was now back in the United States was a matter of considerable interest to the FBI. After all, it's not every day that a guy defects to the Soviet Union, only to return a few years later and with a Soviet-born wife in tow. On August 16th, two agents, John Fane and Arnold Brown, showed up at Oswald's apartment. Rather than speak in front of Marina, they spoke in their car, with Oswald and Brown sharing the back seat. It was the second time that Oswald had been interviewed. Fain would later say that he was dissatisfied with Oswald's explanation as to why he had defected to the Soviet Union. But he did agree with one thing that Oswald said, that, quote, I was not that important, unquote. After Oswald's 1959 defection, the KGB determined that Oswald was a nothing. Now the FBI agreed. Nobody, it seemed, thought much of Lee Harvey Oswald. Agent Fane closed Oswald's file. But Oswald, not knowing that his file had been closed, told Marina that he was being persecuted and that it would never end. As we'll see down the road, this would lead to a paranoid and insecure Oswald covering up his tracks, inventing aliases, renting apartments under phony names, and all the rest. What about the CIA, by the way? Langley had a file on Oswald, no question about that. He had defected to the Soviet Union. Of course it had a file on him. But did the CIA ever actually interview Oswald? Richard Helms, CIA director from 1966 to 1973, spoke to PBS's Frontline in 1993. The FBI would certainly interview him for counter-espionage purposes and to try and find out whether the KGB had recruited him, whether he was going to be somebody that they had to continue to watch, uh, what his motives were, and all the rest of those things. And it was the FBI's responsibility, and if they interviewed him once or twice, that would seem to me to have been adequate. And yet one former CIA officer, Donald Denslia, said the agency did debrief Oswald in 1962. I received across my desk a debriefing report. It was a re debriefing of a Marine redefector. He was returning with his family from the Soviet Union and was back in the United States. The report was approximately four to five pages in length. It gave a lot of details about the organization of the Minsk radio plant. It was signed off by a CIA officer by the name of Anderson. Indeed, frontline researchers combing through Oswald's CIA file at the National Archives, which by 1993 had been declassified, found evidence that supports Densley's version of events. Here's researcher John Newman. We're very interested in the marginalia and the handwritten notes on these files. And one day I picked up a piece of paper and turned it over and could see through the back. I could read handwriting that said, Andy Anderson, double O on Oswald. 
Later on, we found out that double O really is the symbol, the office symbol for the domestic contacts division, which would have had uh, the debriefing uh, mission on Oswald had there been one. And what did Helms, the former CIA chief, say about that? I know of no contact that was made by CIA with Oswald when he returned to the United States. There may have been one, but I'm not aware of it, and I'm not able to shed any light on who it would have been. And this document doesn't change your mind? And that document doesn't change my mind in the slightest. Now, there's no question that Oswald would have been of immense interest to the CIA. Again, he was a defector who came back. Of course they'd be interested, just like the FBI was, in seeing if he had anything to say. Conspiracy buffs are sure that this means that Oswald was working for the CIA. But just because they debriefed him, like the FBI did, it doesn't mean he was. And because it can't be conclusively proven, it does not mean that this is being covered up. Could it be that these agencies were simply embarrassed that they knew Oswald, embarrassed that they debriefed him, a soon-to-be presidential assassin? Dr. Larry Sabato is a professor of politics at the University of Virginia, a longtime student of the Kennedy assassination, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Kennedy Half Century. He told CBS that both agencies clearly made mistakes in not sharing what they knew. How did they drop the ball with respect to Lee Harvey Oswald? This was not someone who melted into the crowd. Uh, He was a very strange individual, one of just a handful of Americans to defect to the Soviet Union, when I don't think many people would have wanted to leave America for that. And then he returned to the United States. And before long, he's out campaigning on the public streets for Fidel Castro. Very strange. And both the CIA and the FBI knew about him. Both of them were keeping tabs on them, on him, and both of them dropped the ball. They never told the Secret Service he even existed. Secret Service had no idea he was in Dallas on November 22nd, much less working in a building uh, just uh, next to the motorcade route where the president is coming by in an open limousine. It's, it's hard to believe, but it's true. Keep in mind, though, this was 1962. Oswald had not threatened anyone. He was working a buck 25 an hour job at a sheet metal plant. Was he a weirdo? Yes. An unstable character? Absolutely. But what proof did the federal government have that he was a threat to anyone? Seems like a fair question. I've got a gal in the Texas was booming in the early 1960s. There were opportunities galore. The emigre community that the Oswalds were welcomed into could open plenty of doors, but Lee did not seem too interested. At a dinner party on August 25th, Marina, as usual, was a sensation. Her beauty and charm wowing everyone, but Oswald, not so much. Priscilla Johnson McMillan, writing about that evening, noted that Oswald, the high school dropout, came across as not only naive, and his treatment of Marina rubbed people the wrong way. One guest, Katya Ford, would say that she and others at the dinner were sure that Oswald was mentally unstable. Marina would later tell McMillan that after the party, Lee seemed resentful of the attention that she was getting. Marina said that she told Oswald, quote, since you can't spoil me, why shouldn't they? 
And with that, Marianna said, Oswald flew into a rage and slapped her. Don't ever say that again, he hissed. I've also mentioned previously how Oswald hated capitalism and people in authority. The emigres sensed that he viewed them with contempt because of their materialism. One guest at the dinner party, Anna Meller, summed Oswald up. He was, quote, anti-Soviet Union, anti-United States, anti-society in general, and anti-us, unquote. But Oswald did not turn off everyone. One person who took a liking to him was a man named George de Mornschild, who intriguingly had emigrated from Minsk in 1938. His life was colorful. Among other things, he worked in the petroleum industry, was a professor, had briefly dated Janet Auchincloss, whose daughter Jacqueline would later marry John F. Kennedy. Conspiracy buffs also think that de Mornschild was a CIA agent, though in the 1970s, the House Select Committee on Assassinations would later say that there was, quote, no evidence that de Mornschild had ever been an American intelligence agent, and nothing in its report or volumes suggests that he was acting at the behest of any foreign country in his dealings with Oswald. Again, this was the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the late 1970s. In any case, here's what de Mornschild said about Oswald. I actually believe that he was a very sincere person, and with me, he was extremely sincere, because I treated him almost uh, like a son of mine. You know, he could have been a son by his, by his age. We'll be hearing more about Timur and Scheld in a future episode. More Countdown to Dallas right after this quick break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. On October the 8th, at the end of his shift at the Leslie Welding Company, Oswald left never to return. He had only been there for 12 weeks. His bosses had no idea what happened until they got a letter from him saying that he had moved to Dallas and gotten another job. This was another of Oswald's lies. He did not have a new job. And another lie, he gave Marina the impression that he had been 
can't. Why did Oswald make all this up? He figured that the emigrate community that he despised would, for the sake of Marina and Little June, come to the rescue and help him find something better. The gambit paid off. A woman from the August dinner party, Elena Hall, invited Marina and June to stay with her while Oswald looked for work. With help from the Texas Unemployment Commission, he soon found a job at a graphic arts firm, Jagger's Child Stovall, which needed a trainee for its photo department. The job would teach Oswald how to operate complex camera equipment, work in a dark room, and make clean photo prints, skills that we'll soon see would be beneficial to him in all sorts of ways. So Oswald had another job. He was able to rent a new apartment for his family. According to a friend of Marina's, it was a filthy pigsty. Marina says she stayed up till 5 a.m. trying to scrub away the grime. Lee, Marina said, did little to help. Meantime, they continued to fight, and Lee continued to hit her. The emigre community noticed at one point that Marina had a black eye. She also appeared malnourished. Things were so bad that at one point, Marina left Lee, showing up at the doorstep of an emigre friend, Anna Meller. By now, the emigre community in the Dallas-Fort Worth area was fed up with Oswald, his surly attitude, his ingratitude for all the help they had extended. The Mellers and another man who had grown tired of Oswald's antics, George Bowie, called Lee a, quote, megalomaniac, unbalanced, a psychopath, and a lunatic. But because of their affection for Marina and Little June, they remained in Oswald's orbit. They tried to get Oswald and Marina to reconcile Priscilla Johnson McMillan's recounting of a meeting at the home of George DeBorgelt is revealing. I'm tired of his brutality, Marina said. I can't take it anymore. To which Oswald replied, quote, Sometimes I can't hold myself back. So Oswald is now admitting that he has a temper, admitting that he can get violent. Sometimes I can't hold myself back, he said. Quite a statement, and it dovetails with the lifelong baseline characteristics of Oswald that I've mentioned before. But Oswald was all sad about this. I have nobody now, he said. He begged Marina, and this is a foreshadowing of the night before President Kennedy's assassination, he begged her to come back. Quote, I don't know what I'll do if you leave me, he said. I don't want to go on living. No, Marina said, I don't want to live with you. I want a divorce. At one point, Lee threatened violence. According to the de Morinschelts, he said he would smash all of Little June's toys and tear up Marina's dresses. Oswald begged Marina for days, calling her once or twice a night. By now, it's mid-November 1962, Oswald begged one final time. He was desperate. He had been invited to spend Thanksgiving at Robert Oswald's house in Fort Worth. Go by yourself, Marina said, knowing that this would humiliate her husband. But Marina eventually gave in, and on Thanksgiving Day, they would be together. There is a home movie of that day, that Thanksgiving Day, at Robert Oswald's house. The date, in retrospect, was rather ominous, November 22nd. Lee's stepbrother and his wife were also there. Here's Robert Oswald on Frontline. 
Thanksgiving Day, November 22nd, 1962. We are all having a pleasant holiday atmosphere. Everybody's getting along fine. John and Margie and his family have not seen Lee in nine years. It's been a couple of months since I've seen him. We talked about small things, hunting and fishing type thing. You know, what the families were doing and everything. And Lee didn't seem under any particular strain, no indication of any particular problems. A home movie shows Oswald in a sleeveless V-neck sweater over a shirt, sitting on the couch, appearing to enjoy himself. Later that night, Paul Gregory Jr. would also see the Oswalds. He remembers it clearly. That date is very easy to remember. Thanksgiving Day, uh, they had moved from Fort Worth to Dallas. That was probably September, late September, early October. I had returned to the University of Oklahoma, so there was no real opportunity to interact with them. But I kind of expected we would get together uh, on Thanksgiving because that would be really the first day I would have gone back to Fort Worth. So uh, it's very clear that that date is very clear because it was exactly one year before the, the assassination. Because Gregory was a student at the University of Oklahoma, he hadn't seen the Oswalds in a few months, but seeing them now on Thanksgiving Day, he saw more evidence that their relationship was deeply troubled. I did not know that they had separated you know, more than one time and their marital difficulties were evident and uh, his abuse of her was more evident. All of that I didn't. Uh, didn't see because I was in Oklahoma. So I I did get the call from Marina on Thanksgiving Day, and that shows some resourcefulness on her part because she somehow managed to to find the phone number, and I didn't think she even knew our phone number in Fort Worth, but she called up saying, "Uh, I'd like you to come over and pick us up, take us to the bus station for the last bus, which would have left around 9 p.m. or 8 p.m., So that gave us uh, four or five hours uh, together. And it was at that point that she really came down hard on Lee and was telling me that she was keeping her apart from her Russian friends. He was was unpleasant to everybody, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So he just sat there, I guess, looking bored, and she was unloading on him. I guess that, that went on for two, three hours or so. And uh, then I drove them to the, tri- to the bus station. They traveled everywhere, either by foot or on, uh, on the bus. So I took them to the bus station. The bus looked like it was pulling out, so they got out and ran. So we didn't say proper goodbyes. The next time Paul Gregory would see Oswald would be a year later on television on November 22nd, 1963. If you like this podcast, check out my book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Thanks to Paul Gregory Jr. Sound from CBS and the PBS program Frontline, I highly recommend its 1993 episode titled, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald? Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. 
And I'm Paul Brandist. Thanks so much for listening. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.